Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Now, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a struggling artist looking for their big break will be waiting tables or writing advertising copy or also perhaps even dog walking. As well as hunting after roles on the screen or the stage, the budding actor is similarly typecast in another part, that of barista or perhaps staff at a temping agency. Many of us fall into the trap of weighing creative work by the monetary value it provides the maker. Can you make a living off your sculptures or performance art? If so, you've made it. But what if the relationship between artists and their day jobs is more complicated than that? What if having a second line of work can in fact enrich your creative work and not just financially support it? What if there are more reasons than one not to give up the day job? On today's show then, we will be exploring the notion of day jobs, heading to an exhibition in Texas and hearing from an array of artists discussing the jobs they've held or continue to hold alongside their other work. First up on today's show, our inspiration for this episode is a new exhibition at the Blanton Museum in Austin, Texas. It examines the impact of day jobs on the visual arts and features work from dishwashers, graphic stylists and hairdressers, among many others. Monocle correspondent Tomas Lewis sat down with the curator Veronica Roberts to find out more about this unusual choice for an exhibition. The Day Jobs exhibition is a look at the way that artists working in the United States, the way that their day jobs as janitors or hairstylists or lawyers or nannies has informed their artistic practices. And the show was really inspired by years of conversations with artists. I was lucky enough early in my career to work with artists like Barbara Kruger and Saul LeWitt and both of them shared with me that their day jobs had been more influential than just about any other thing in their practice. So Barbara shared with me that, that her work as a graphic designer, working for magazines like Mademoiselle and various Condé Nast publications, really was the fodder for her practice and the critique that she makes with her salient images and, and text like your body is a battleground. 
I was really struck by that and by that relationship to her lived experiences and her relationship, the relationship between the, the artwork and her career and this other career that she had. And Saul LeWitt, when I met him, I discovered, and I didn't know this prior to working with him, that he had worked as a receptionist at the Museum of Modern Art. And I was so amazed when I heard who else was working there in various frontline positions. So he shared with me that Dan Flavin was running the elevator. He was the elevator operator. Robert Mengold was working as a guard and in the library. Lucy Lepard was paging books in the library. Robert Ryman was a security guard and the list kept going on and on. And I thought, what an amazing, how did I not know that all of these artists, that this, this experience for them had been so fundamental to their, not just to their their friendships. They all, you know, became friends and collaborators in so many ways, but that it also had shaped their artistic work. The show is more than just looking at artists who have day jobs, because frankly, in the U.S., that's just about everyone. You know, that would mean I would have to do a show of the whole world. But, um, and this show could have been, you know, I think a wonderful version of the show could be done with a completely different set of artists as well. Um, so this is not a comprehensive show. I just felt that this was an overlooked part of uh, artistic production. How have we not examined this before? And I think the way we even learn about artists has been so limited. And I was, I was, I will say I was really motivated to share these stories also because I feel that that art is deeply connected to lived experiences and daily lives and that we we have a lot of misperceptions about artists and also about creativity coming from these sort of from spaces that the, the sort of lone genius artist myth I thought was desperate need of debunking and deflating and redressing and knowing artists and having the privilege of working with closely with artists for more than 20 years I'm just struck by how often Artists are exceptionally hardworking, have other jobs that they are doing to sustain themselves. And then I was really struck by this untold story about the way that day jobs have actually informed people's practices. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose maybe, especially if you're an artist at the start of your career, be it an actor or a musician or a visual artist, you know, the assumption is that, you know, if you're waiting tables or, you know, working in an office, an office job of some kind, that that day job is the thing that's kind of holding you back. You know, that there are two separate kind of existences here. There's the thing that pays the bills. There's the thing that really fills fills the heart and the true ambitions of the artists themselves. So I just wonder whether, you know, you can talk a little bit about whether that is a tension, whether that's like a positive one that you've found. And yeah, maybe some examples from the exhibition of how that tension sort of bears out in your mind or any examples that you're happy to sort of walk us through that you think speak most clearly. Day jobs are not just one thing. They can be very generative. Even for the same artist, they can be generative and depleting. And I know many artists in the show, Marsha Cottrell, for example, who worked for Condé Nast and made these absolutely beautiful works on paper that look like solar eclipses and they're, they almost look like photographs and they're made with a, basically an office printer that she's feeding paper into multiple times. And she shared with me 
how grateful she was that this office printer and her frustration with it and her, you know, she used it so much led her to think about using it in a creative capacity. But she, so she's grateful that that happened on a day job, but she also said that she feels that just the amount of time she had to spend working, she's only recently quit that job. She, it's, it was really exhausting and took her away from the studio. So even for the same artist who can both credit their job for being generative, they can also feel exhausted. And I think there's a lot of artists in the show shared how hard it is to be juggling so many different jobs and, and their time. So it's both, it's generative and depleting at the same time. I wanted to showcase some of the artists for whom it had been wonderfully impactful. And I was really interested in that, tracing that line. And one of the examples I would give is a wonderful artist named Genesis Bellinger, younger artist who is in the show. And she makes these ex exquisite stoneware sculptures and porcelain sculptures that are often of um, hands, like female hands with manicured fingernails. Or we in the show, we have an amazing brush that like instead of having bristles, it has fingers with pink nail, hot pink nail polish on it. And she talks about being an assistant to a prop stylist and having to schlep all over Manhattan, you know, creating these mythical interiors for various magazine ads. And she said she was making very different work before that job. And she took the job because she thought it was kind of fun. It was a, a set number of hours. It paid pretty well. And she it, it didn't take up mental space so that when she was done, she left the job behind and could make work. And it, and it really did shift her practice. And she started making these sculptures that are very much informed by photo shoots and this seduction of advertisements. And she talks about how grateful she was. She got this kind of backstage pass to how some of the most seductive images in our culture are made and that she has channeled that into her work. But the difference is that her work isn't trying to sell us anything. And it's not trying to sell us a watch or a, a man's tie. So, so she talks about being so grateful for that job, which she had for many years and how it really shaped her work. Another example that I love is Mark Bradford, who always speaks about being a hairstylist to, and, and very openly and, and happily credits his experience as a hairstylist working in his mother's beauty shop in LA, a black beauty shop with mostly female clientele. He refers to the, the beauty shop as his first studio and where he learned well, I think it was a place of real material discovery for him. The end papers he was using to protect women's hair during permanent waves became the building block of his abstract painting. And the and and he talks about also it not just being a material discovery, but for him a kind of social paper. He refers to as sort of a social paper that reflects the the neighborhood and the community and specifically the space of this shop it reflects that in in the materials and that that's really important to him and his abstract you know the the these sort of incredible abstract canvases and works on paper he's been making ever since and i think in the show some of the works you can sort of pick up on what the day job was quite quickly and 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 see it legibly and in others it's it's more nuanced and you and you can sort of uh, um, it, it maybe you're reading the label or you're looking at the work and and it reveals itself a bit more a bit more slowly over time so there's a wide range of of works in the show and ways that those stories are being told by the works themselves veronica roberts there and the exhibition at the blanton museum of art is open until july 
Next up on today's show, Nate Lewis explores race and history through patterns and textures in his unique artwork. But for the nine years previously, his practice was as an ICU nurse. I spoke to Nate about making this transition and whether he always had an artistic impulse or it was more of a sudden conversion. It was like I never grew up drawing or doing anything involving, I guess, fine art. I guess I looked at the only the form of art that I did growing up was probably like play sports. So it was like understanding the kinetics of my body. So in the ICU, yeah, that's when I first started drawing. It's interesting because once I got into, once I got deeper and deeper into art and like my practice, I think I realized that there's so much creativity and thinking and and working as an intensive care unit nurse, as a practice, you know, in, in itself, in an extraordinarily multifaceted practice. And I was able to see, you know, all of the, I guess, art, like, within that practice of working as a nurse as a practice. And then just all of the, you know, the scientific elements, you know, that are present in it. And then if you think about a conceptual practice and ideas and uh, that it was just so rich of so much to learn and understand and something that I probably, you know, apply to my artistic practice these days. So I wasn't thinking about it as it wasn't like an outlet for creativity because it was deeply stimulating in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I mean, there must have been there must have been moments despite the stimulating nature of being an ICU nurse, the pressure out of thought and a lot of the humanity in that. I'm sure that informs your art, your artwork now and your practice now. But there must have been moments when you felt very far away from being an artist in a studio or wherever you do your practice, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the time away from working the times that I had because I mean working as a nurse you only work three days a week which is really nice so that time away was completely separate from it for sure it was definitely a a relaxing time because working as a nurse ICU nurse was not relaxing at all I think only now I see the not only now but within the last like few years maybe the, the deep deep intersection of my thinking as a, that spills over into my practice, you know, as an artist from a nurse. Yeah, and I mean, to, and, and to take that, I mean, the simple matter of training, I call it the simple matter of training, but I mean, clearly there is deep, rigorous training with a huge amount of responsibility that, that you need as a nurse. The, respons- the training that you undertake as an artist, formally or informally, whether you become a fine artist or whether your practice is of a, is of a slightly different nature, Nate, I wondered about the training and the idea of rigor that you required as a nurse, whether that has informed the work you make and how you make your work. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the rigor, I think that's something I've always had in me. I've had it through a few different elements of my life. And the first one was being an athlete. The second one was like studying for nursing school. And then the third one was being a, yeah, being a, professional, you know, working um, intensive care unit nurse. And I think when I started working as an artist, I was still working as a nurse. So my drive to create art, and I think it happened actually like a few years after I started drawing, I had a big breakthrough working with paper, which was like kind of the first creative breakthrough I've had. 
it was the, the reason why I had that breakthrough, you know, I really attribute it to working with electrocardiogram rhythms of patients that I took care of. And there was a conviction that I had in creating art, which was related to the conviction that I had in taking care of people and just really understanding kind of like the the honor that it was to be in people's lives and to be aiding and assisting to nurture people and the families and the dynamics and everything to uh, a good place. But that rigor that I had, I, I brought into just working on art because it was a deep conviction because there was nothing for me. I didn't grow up making art, so I wasn't thinking about the canon of art or anything. I was just making from my heart. The medium I was working with, I thought about it, I thought about it artistically, but I also very much thought about it like scientifically. And like it was like this excavation of, of this work I was working with, of this material. But I also thought about it like, they were these, like these were these memorials to like patients I took care of. Thanks, Nate. That was the artist Nate Lewis. Now, Reagan Moss has a similarly demanding second life, but her day job as an attorney isn't one that she's left behind. Instead, she balances her role as a lawyer with creating and exhibiting wonderful installation works. I began by asking Reagan whether having a high-powered day job sometimes takes away your agency as an artist. I haven't experienced that. I mean, I think if you take artwork as it comes to you, as it is, and don't try you know, to do backflips and contort yourself to to make it into something that it's not or to assume that you know a lot about it based on who you think made it. I think if you if you don't do those things, then I don't think that that kind of thing is an, an issue. I think where having a more intensive job and doing it simultaneously to the intensive job that being an artist is, is really just a where the tension is 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 in the the day to day is in how do you how do you stay at that high energy high intensity use the word high powered the ultimate plate spinning of being a fine artist as well and as you say you're you're exceptionally intellectually and scholastically educationally empowered in both of those worlds that we feel perhaps are disparate and that is one of the setups of the idea of this edition of this program is that we're presuming those are quite different things and I wondered whether you you consider these two things that you pursue as being a day job and the other thing I wonder how you you actually divide your your time Reagan well I, I think the idea of a day job that itself we know what colloquially that means but I think it's not really a day to night kind of thing you're the same consistent person or inconsistent person throughout the day and night and everything that you do. So I I don't think I really think of one as a, a day job and or the other as a day job. I do think that my heart's work relies with making art. Like that's the thing that appears to me, you know, and I've lived long enough that I feel like I know myself-ish it's the hardest to let go of. I, I don't think I will ever not make artwork uh, or sculpture or some some form of tangible communication of ideas. But I will say that something that relates to my work 
especially, and I think is probably informed by the perspective that I have by working this other, you know, somewhat intensive job and having to reckon with people who come from outside what's known as the art world, you know, on a pretty regular basis, it, it kind of lends itself to a good degree of perspective, a way of making artwork might be, or the purpose of artwork, if it has a purpose, might be. And so a motif or theme that I keep coming back in my work, and I've made expressly work about this, is just really the idea of, you know, what is imagination? What is creativity? And I think having worked in multiple fields simultaneously, you know, I don't think imagination or creativity or some version of that always have to be thought of as good. I don't think that creativity and imagination are always like moral positions or have moral ideals or moral purposes. I think a lot of our most destructive, cruel, harmful devices or machines or creations also spring from creativity and imagination. So creativity and imagination are a locus or a process for also wreaking great havoc on each other and causing great destruction. So from that perspective, I feel like there are ways to be imaginative and inventive and even creative, you know, outside of just the fine arts or fields that we more quickly associate with creativity. And then there are ways to be within the arts and have a complete lack of creativity or imagination or inventiveness. I think that tends to be harder to spot. And so if you approach both or just life from that perspective, I think it helps make sense of why, you know, maybe being an attorney and being an artist don't seem incompatible or don't have to be incompatible. I mean, it, it is perhaps a facile question to ask in a way that I was going to ask you about which side of your brain is working when you're an attorney and when you're an artist, but your your artworks are rigorous constructions with a kind of strong intellectual basis behind their making. They are <laughs> weird, strange to say it, but almost you could you could imagine there is a rationale an argued through rationale to these things I don't want to make say that this is artwork made by an attorney's mind but there is something there is a string that links these two practices that you pursue together is that fair to say there are there are there are people that might make work that is similar to yours similar in its rigor to yours but who do a very different other job as it were for money and I wonder whether that was a, f a fair comment, actually, that there is, there seems to me to be a string between both of those, we will call them jobs. I mean, I think that's uh, beautiful and I appreciate it. And I, I don't think it's wrong for me. I don't think that has to mutually exclude the idea that other people who are, you know, working rigorously in whatever field couldn't apply themselves towards an artwork with the same kind of left brain, right brain approach. I guess I, I think even that idea of a categorization, I don't know, we're so entrenched in our culture in patterns and categories and they make life quick and easy, but they're not always reality. They're not always really based on experience and taking something again, as it is. And so, I mean, I, I approach my work as me, and I definitely feel like at my best, I'm an integrated person. 
And so I'm using everything that I've learned, you know, even this conversation will become, you know, integrated in who I am. And then you proceed from there. So definitely when I'm practicing as an attorney, I think I tend to keep the lights on in the house of creativity. And when I'm making a sculpture, they are very intensive to make and there's a lot of steps and I make lots of lists to kind of keep me on track and on the right process. And going back to this idea of creativity and imagination, I mean, I feel like the the best thing that that human creativity or imagination can do for us is to make us feel less disconnected, both internally and externally. So less of a disjointed person, because we can, you know, imagine what it's like, A, to be somebody else or, you know, B, to, to make something that we haven't already seen. You define it beautifully, Reagan, as I thought you would before we got you on the telephone. I don't know whether I should describe you as attorney and artist, Reagan Moss, or artist and attorney. Maybe artist, artist, attorney, or person, human, human first. And then it all comes from there. Reagan Moss there. And finally on today's show, I was delighted to be joined in the studio by the comedian Kathy Maniura, whose whimsical character sketches delight in the oddities of people and things. My favourite of hers are those which gently skewer the art world, including a rather excellent sketch as the long-suffering flatmate of Tracy Emin. And so it's no surprise that for the last four years, Kathy has balanced stand-up comedy with working in arts and marketing. Three of those years were at the Tate, and she's now freelance. I started our conversation by asking how she sees the link between those two jobs. I didn't study art. I came into it through advertising and marketing. I studied history. Right. I've always really liked visual art, but it wasn't my dream necessarily. Yeah. And it's funny because I met people working at Tate and sometimes would meet people who didn't work there who'd be like, that's my dream. My only dream is to work at Tate. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh God, I feel a bit bad because <laughs> I really love it. But, it, you know, it wasn't my passion. And I think perhaps coming in with that outsider's perspective, the art world is mad. Well, you can see where you can see the mad. you can see where the kind of the reality you can see yeah. where the smoke and the mirrors lie in the art yeah. world. Yeah, and I think there's a particular to me there's something particularly funny about. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I, as a comedian, what I'm always doing, I think, is looking for funny things. Yeah, that's just how I operate in the world. <laughs> yeah, just constantly like <laughs> that trying... works for the rest of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, sometimes to my detriment, but you know, constantly trying to notice like because I do character comedy as well, so it'll be like people's traits. Mm-hmm. So a funny turn of phrase someone has, a weird like inflection, a funny mannerism, or just like little, at the moment I'm pretending to be lots of objects. That's the yeah. show that I'm writing. So even just weird things. So I think the art world, particularly like public sector art, there's this amazing and very funny clash of the sort of pretentiousness and glamour and self-seriousness maybe of the private art world and of a lot of contemporary artists, not all of them. <laughs> Some of them are very funny and lovely and chill. Um, he is making the sound of an asterisk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Not Please don't come after me. And then the kind of chaos of the public sector and the underfunding. And it's just funny watching those butt heads in the same institution, in the same space. And, you know, like the Tates will host like fashion week parties, but then also, you know, you can't 
get budget for food at a gallery opening or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's kind the of good news weird... is the drinks at the opening are going to be Tizer. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a nice, refreshing glass of tap. You water. get a lot of um, okay. cheese straws. Yeah. And so, is it simplistic to say, Cathy, that that there is a section on the manure dictaphone, which mm. is simply things you've noticed that day in the office, or is it a more subtle kind of vibe report that your comedy? begs, steals and borrows from yeah. your day job. I mean, are you finding it individual instances? And I think of... it can be both. Yeah. I think the funny thing was when I was working at Tate, I didn't do that much material about it. And not even on purpose, but I think there was something holding me back a bit. And then it was only when I left that I started doing like those videos about <laughs> con- living with contemporary artists. You're promising and... me that's not your self-preservation. <laughs> I know, but who knows? <laughs> but I also had for a bit, I did like, I had a contemporary art gallery label that I would like... I made up one that I would read yeah. out, which is all, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> I just love how they're written. That, to me, is also so funny, the way that art gallery labels are written. Oh. So give us, a, give us an example. Oh, it's all the, like, what was it? It was, like, <laughs> the materials are, like, perspex, potatoes, <laughs> pierced blood and cum. Yeah. Like, and it's this very serious bit about, like, this group of artists who, like, live Seaman in Seaman artist's own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. I think that's the thing is it, it maybe is just that self-seriousness of, there's a lot of really, really funny, silly stuff in art. And there's a lot of very funny, silly mm-hmm. artists. You have people like David Shrigley, who are like He's a funny man. Comedians, yeah, basically. Yeah. But there's a lot of very funny stuff that people take so seriously, which is kind of like when you're in a school assembly and you're not allowed to laugh and you're like, oh, but come on. This is <laughs> we've, been, we've certainly been there. Yeah. We've been there. And I mean, it's having that sort of job and, and having a job that's in that world that occasionally po faced. But often fascinating and, you know, enlivening kind of day job is a wonderful one to riff off. Because a lot of comedy that riffs off the drudgery of work, doesn't Mm. it? So it's The Office or it's, you Mm. know, it's it's all these classic things. So you're you're kind of riffing on the the sort of beguiling madness of of some of your day job, I suppose. Yeah. And I think it's it's quite tender, your lampooning of it. Good, because I hope because I I love it. I think that's my favourite kind of comedy as well is is a sort of, I guess, a gentle piss-taking that kind of comes from a place of love. And I don't like mean comedy. (laughs) And I just think there's something about, in a more general sense, I suppose, about just being in a creative environment with creative people, even if it's not in the same medium, that is so inspiring. And I think visual art in particular, I was thinking about this on the way here, that it's, it's almost like one of the purest types of creativity because as a comedian, you're sort of completely beholden to the audience response and you're just kind of desperately trying to please and even if you think something's hilarious if but you, you can sort it, of edit on the go can't you if, you, yeah. if someone if you're losing them a bit you can reach out to them a little bit more well, but, whereas I mean, an artwork just has to sit there and do what it well, was decided was done two years ago well exactly and I suppose that's what I mean like I'm constantly that's one of the things I love about comedy but you're constantly trying to read the room and, and work out like what do you want yeah. <laughs> is it this okay no is it this Whereas visual artists, it's kind of amazing to watch contemporary artists work because they're just like, this is it. This is my idea. This is how I want it to look. This is what I want to say. And then it's kind of a curiosity how people respond, but they're not necessarily trying to elicit Mm -hmm. a particular response. So there's kind of a very... And they don't want to explain it. No, No, often they don't. Sometimes they need to, maybe. I really but... want to hear. I, th- I think you're, I'd love to hear what you could do with press releases because I used to be the culture editor of this magazine mm. and still in that world. And it was fabulous for all sorts of reasons. But the press releases 
were amazing and continue mm. to be so. I think uh, that's that's a world where the verbiage of yeah. the, the kind of truth and uh, the truth, the kind of truth of the the brushstroke, as it were, of the artist mm. is often lost in the vocabulary and vernacular of the art, art yeah. world press release. Right? I think that's kind of what I mean about the the interpretation labels as well as. Sometimes I think they do the work a disservice where they try and go too far or try and over intellectualize or and well and often that is what happens when artists actually write about their own work. What's the current buzzword in the art world blurb? Immersive. Okay, few. Yeah. How many agencies are you getting these days? Everything. Quite a lot of agencies. Everything. Used to be a place where you got a job, and now it's a lot of other things. Yeah. Okay. So immersive and agency. These are these are things we need to watch out for. In the drinking game of reading a press an artist press release, we would be on the floor Mm. with the immersives. I think immersive. I'm trying to think what else. Maybe identity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All the I's and the A's. Yeah. But I love it. The thing is, it's an easy hand in Scrabble. It is. It really is. But. You know, again, that's what you were saying. Like, but it's also great. Mm. I love, I love all that stuff, and I. It's quite I think, benign, isn't it? It's not doing any harm. Yeah, and I it's think silly, it's, but it's not doing any harm. It's nice to have. Sometimes you need people and places that are taking that sort of thing to an extreme, in a way that maybe is a bit silly. But I think this is the this is my kind of pitch on art galleries, <laughs> is that I think it does just make all of us more creative, though, and that's what being around all of that definitely encouraged me Mm. yeah it's just energizing where you're like okay well this person has built this absolutely insane installation that maybe doesn't make much sense to me and maybe I don't like that much aesthetically but the fact that they've done that and they had that vision and they followed it through and they've been supported by an institution to do that it's like wow okay I can probably write some more jokes yeah and it is it's it is that thing it's quite empowering that might be another word mm. in the press release it is quite nonetheless it is quite empowering <laughs> perhaps to witness people who have a very sort of slightly solipsistic creative impulse mm. and as a comedian perhaps perhaps I don't want to put words in your mouth but you're always you're you're on a seesaw of of confidence and needing that confidence to be boosted by an audience yep. and I think that maybe working in the art world or working adjacent to it can boost that up you, you're kind yeah. of dealing with a real selfish form of creativity yeah. not unlike stand-up comedy which is someone yep. standing up in front of oh, a room yeah. of strangers with a microphone Listen and some funny things in their yeah. head <laughs> yeah it's funny because they can both be very lonely I mm. think there's also a sort of I guess cliche of like a stand-up touring by themselves and it's quite introspective. Like you're quite in your head, but then at the same time, you're so dependent on the external validation that, yeah, I think that's the funny thing about galleries as well. I'm talking a lot about the contemporary stuff. And I suppose to me, that's where a lot of the absurdity is because the artists are alive. But some of the historical stuff is mad, <laughs> is mad as well. <laughs> and then you get into the big conversations about like what's collected, what's shown, what it yeah. means, all of that. But yeah, I think it's... You could do a whole other series of, you know, Botticelli's, Botticelli's yeah. flatmate. Yeah. <laughs> That's a point, actually. Leonardo's cleaner, you know. Yeah, Leonardo's flatmate is quite a good one. She's <laughs> yeah. paint, painted everything. I mean, Caravaggio, you've got to steer clear of, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there'd be some dead bodies Actual in that murderer. flat show. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, honestly. Yeah. Taking, that one, taking that one home with me. But no, I was going to say, it's interesting being in those institutions and watching kind of everyone bend to the will of the artist. Yeah. And for better or for worse, like sometimes that can be quite frustrating, but... It's just kind of like, this is the artist's vision. Mm. We have to do it. I like that. Bending to the will of the artist is it's yeah. what we're all trying to do. 
Yeah, I guess. The, je- Does... the jealous Kathy it... Kitman. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was going to say, then that the comedians are the opposite. You're bending to the will of the audience, aren't you? But... <laughs> Um, well, it's brilliant. Thank you for coming in and telling us Thank you. about, I think, also how that all plays into your, your comedy process, because it mm. really works wonders in those films. Oh, Long thanks. may they continue. Thank you. Kathy, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you in. so much. It's been great. Kathy Maniura there. And check out her Instagram, Kathy Kathy MM, where you can find details of upcoming shows, including at the Brighton Fringe Festival in May and the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in August. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Tomas Lewis and all of our guests, Veronica Roberts, Nate Lewis, Reagan Moss and Kathy Maniura. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. Special thanks to Emily Sands for her help editing this episode too. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 